Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I bring you a pretty unusual interview. Most of my interviews are with foreign correspondents based somewhere, quote-unquote, foreign, which I realize is a problematic concept because it really means foreign to the United States or to the Anglo world. And when I interview correspondents who cover the United States, we usually talk about the United States. But this week, I spoke to someone who is really a roving correspondent, who does a huge portion of his reporting abroad while being based in the United States. Our guest this week is Scott Gurian, the host and producer of Far From Home, a travel podcast. Scott is a veteran of public radio, having worked for programs like Planet Money and 99% Invisible. He's taken that experience and applied it with amazing effect on Far From Home. In his first season, he documents his journey across Europe and Asia as part of something called Mongol Rally, a charity race that isn't really a race from England to Mongolia. I really love how you get to feel like you're along for the ride in his rinky-dink tiny car with no air conditioning crossing the desert in Iran or mountains in Central Asia. I'd particularly recommend the episode where he goes to Turkmenistan, a place that lets almost no foreigners in. His show is really amazing, and in two subsequent seasons, he continues to take listeners around the globe, even after the rally. In his latest season, I found his episode about issues that black travelers face to be particularly eye-opening. I guess the main difference between Scott and many correspondents is he really has not lost his ability to view everything with fresh eyes, which becomes more difficult the longer you live abroad. He makes an excellent stand-in for how an average American might view something foreign when seeing it for the first time. I'd highly recommend the show, and you can find it wherever podcasts are distributed. Beyond talking about Far From Home, Scott will do a lot to demystify the often confusing myriad of radio shows, radio stations, networks, and affiliations that have always baffled me as an NPR listener. He'll also talk about his reporting about how the state of New Jersey responded to Hurricane Sandy, which ultimately won him and his colleagues the prestigious Peabody Award, a major award that generally honors the best in radio and TV broadcasting. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Scott Gurian, the host and producer of the podcast, Far From Home. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jake. Really appreciate it. So to warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene for us and tell us a little bit about where you are, both the physical space around you and geographically, what time it is, and a little bit about your last week of work or whatever you've been up to. Sure. So obviously, it's a little bit different right now because of the pandemic. Normally, I produce a travel documentary podcast, and I'm traveling all over the world to gather interesting stories. At this point, we're speaking in mid-January, and it's been almost a full year since I've hopped on a plane, since I've traveled anywhere substantial. So I live and work out of home in northern New Jersey, just outside of New York City. So right now, I'm just sitting in my home office in front of my messy desk. It's about one in the afternoon here. And this is kind of where I've been working over the past year. It's been obviously a little bit challenging to produce travel content when you can't actually travel. Right. But I've been as kind of as creative and resourceful as I can, kind of digging a little bit into my archives, trying to speak to friends and colleagues around the world just over the internet and having them kind of do recordings on their end and send them to me to figure out how to continue putting out my show. 
And so the last week for me here, I'm sort of taking a break right now because I just wrapped up my third season of episodes. So I'm doing a little bit of strategizing and planning for my next season and trying to form some partnerships with people who have other podcasts sharing some content and things like that. So that's what I've been working on. Cool. Yeah. And I saw you took it like right up to the end of the year. I think your last episode was what on Chris came out on Christmas, maybe. Yeah, right. It was a kind of a Christmas themed episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, we'll get more into the current work you do a little bit more in the middle of the podcast. But a big goal of the podcast is to give people an idea of how you got to where you are today. And we Mm -hmm. like to start way, way back at the beginning. If you could tell us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if you showed any early interest in journalism. Sure. So I was born and grew up here in northern New Jersey, just outside of New York in the suburbs of New York City. So I have a younger brother and the two of us were raised by our mother. Parents got divorced when we were young. And I think our mother instilled in us this kind of just interest in the world and interest in always trying new things. And even from the time we were young, we would go on ski trips. And at the age of, I don't know, seven or eight, she'd have us like sitting in the back seat, reading the map to tell her where to go or, you know, just to teach us from an early age to be adventurous and explore and trying new foods. She'd go to the grocery store and buy blue potatoes for dinner, just not because they necessarily tasted better, but just because it was interesting. <laughs> it was something new and uh, just always, you know, exposing us to different things. And we went skiing, we went scuba diving, all sorts of things. And, and even things that she wasn't necessarily interested in herself, she encouraged us to find our own interests. And so I think being raised that way from an early age helped me as I grew older to continue to expand my interests. I think of myself kind of as a a lifelong learner. I'm always curious about learning new things and going to new places, trying new foods, learning languages, things like that. I guess my first interest distantly related to what I'm doing now, kind of even going back to like high school, I was the president of the TV studio, you know, putting out little skits or whatever. But then when I got into college, my original interest was in TV and video, just because there's more possibilities for creativity when you have the visual medium. But I just happened to know someone who worked at a radio station. And so I wanted to dip my toe in that water in some kind of journalism work. And so I contacted him and I just started doing some freelance reporting in New York, like a community radio station, went off to college in Boston and continued volunteering with a local community radio station there, started doing some freelance reporting and ended up working in radio. In college, my focus was more video and I kind of learned the radio part on my own. Also, I took like a single journalism class, but I pretty much learned the journalism part on my own as well, just by doing it, which I guess is the best way to learn. And so I've been doing some form of reporting or another for, oh, I guess over 20 years now in some capacity or another. Wow. And it sounds like you kind of skipped the stage of like a student newspaper, student radio, student publications and went straight to local stations and things like that. Is that right? Yeah. I So I, I went to Emerson College in Boston. Oh, and sure. Instead of going to their station, I actually volunteered at the community radio station over at MIT, oddly, <laughs> which was primarily actually not students, but community members who had shows there. And so I volunteered with a weekly talk show on Friday nights, just helping out behind the scenes, helping do interviews or book guests or go out and do some reporting. It was very much a grassroots effort. 
of community members and activisty, I guess would be called advocacy journalists, and no real editing or anything in that vein. So there's no one really holding my hand or telling me this is how you do things. And so I obviously I made a lot of mistakes. And if I listen back to some of that early stuff that I did now, a lot of it would make me cringe, I think. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes it's good, at least at the beginning, to just learn by doing you know you get to a certain point where you really want to work under good editors and you know to really improve your skills and help you to become better at what you do but at least at the beginning just getting out and doing it and having that freedom i think is is really helpful so what what happens when you graduate well i graduated in 2001 from college moved back home to new jersey started looking for a job and just had some connections from reporting and just doing freelance work, which that's the great thing about in journalism, you have that opportunity. You know, it's not a, every field if, you know, you're a plumber or something, you, you can't really do freelance work. But as a journalist, it's a great way to get some exposure, make a little money and get your name out there and get a little bit of experience. So I knew some people started pitching some stories, did some just freelance reporting. And September 11th happened right around then. Right. And so I did some reporting following that, following this D.C. to New York peace walk of families of people who were killed on September 11th in the Pentagon and the World Trade Center, covered that, produced this documentary based on long sit-down interviews I did with them, did some reporting here and there, and then I was able to turn my freelance reporting into a full-time job. I got hired by Pacifica Radio, which people may know is like a left-wing kind of version of like an NPR, more of a grassroots community radio version. And they hired me for a job in Washington, D.C. to produce. Originally, it was like on the one-year anniversary of September 11th, a day-long broadcast going from station to station within their network of programming. But then that turned into a daily, hour-long national talk show I was very young at the time, and I was totally flying by the seat of my pants <laughs> and probably not qualified, definitely not qualified in retrospect. Somehow I got hired for this position. And at least at the beginning, I was basically the only full-time producer trying to come up with an hour of content every weekday. So were you also hosting this or how did that work? No, there was the host who was also the head producer. She would write the top of the show the headlines. And I would try to book guests and find material on the internet we could air and do whatever I could. It, it was very long hours, uh, late nights I'd be working there. Like I said, totally flying by the seat of our pants to come up with an hour of content every day to stick on the air. Sometimes it would be minutes till airtime before we'd finish editing or book last guest or something. Over time, thankfully, we got some more people to help out, some more producers and editors. Sometimes I'd have to engineer the show live on the air if we were short-staffed, if the engineer was out sick. It was totally trial by fire, and uh, a lot of it, in retrospect, wasn't very good. But it was really great experience at a young age to be a senior producer of this crazy experiment, and I feel like I learned a lot. A lot of it is kind of like advocacy journalism, which is kind of what I started out in originally. I would go to protests and I was interested in college or whatever about different issues. And I was thinking of journalism as a way to talk about these issues or feature these perspectives or voices. And I feel like over time, my thinking has evolved a lot. And nowadays, 
I'm really interested in just kind of putting myself in someone else's shoes and hearing if it's a perspective or something that I'm not familiar with or which I might disagree with to think that if I'd had the same formative experiences as that person, if I had grown up in the same place, I might feel the same way they do. And just a genuine curiosity, I think, to hear other perspectives um, and try to understand people more. So clearly, I still have my own viewpoints, as does everyone. But I think that's my overall goal and my approach nowadays in the way I do things. Pacifica Radio has had all sorts of infighting and problems over the years. Even when I was there, I mean, there were budgetary problems. There were days when we were about to broadcast and we're connecting via the ISDN connection to California to send it up on a satellite to the other stations live. And we couldn't connect because someone had forgotten to pay the phone bill. (laughs) Or (laughs) there would be like meetings of the local station board, which would devolve into shouting and even like chair throwing. And it was just, uh, it was a mess. It was a mess. And it's really sad that it's gotten worse and worse over the years. They've had severe financial difficulties in recent years, and it's really been on life support for a number of years. So it's really a shame. But after working there for a year, we produced 265 shows over a year um, every weekday. Yeah, which is a lot. Um, And then eventually the show fizzled out, and also I had to get the hell out of there. (laughs) And so I moved back to New Jersey, continued applying for other positions. And I guess this takes me back to before I went to Pacifica, but somehow I had always been involved in the activist radio space, community radio. And for whatever reason, I just never really had been exposed to public radio, like NPR public radio. And this is right after September 11th, like in the days and the week after when I was just hungry, like all of us, I think, just hungry for news and information, like what the hell is going on? And Mm -hmm. I was just working a stupid part-time job, just delivering pizza, you know, around my neighborhood. And just so I had, this is before podcasts or anything. So I just had the radio on constantly and I would just be driving around town and tuning through the stations, just hearing what's out there. And and eventually I landed on WNYC, our public radio station in New York. So I guess it was like a Friday or a Saturday. Saturday night, and I happened to catch part of This American Life, the famous public radio show. This is right after September 11th. They did this really great show then, and that was the first I'd ever heard it. And that was my first true, what they call in public radio, driveway moment, where I'm sitting in the car, and I arrived at the person's house, and it was just to bring in their pizza, and I'm just sitting there on the street, like, listening, and I can't stop listening. And so I started doing some research, looked at their website and everything, found out that some of their producers had gone to this place called the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies up in Portland, Maine, looked into that applied and went there and took this semester-long program in radio documentary which was really cool did i hear that right it's the salt salt s-a-l-t yeah i don't quite know what the story is behind i guess salt seawater whatever in maine Um, but (laughs) it's since been absorbed into the maine college of art But it was a really great semester-long program that I took, really intensive in radio documentary. I had done reporting before that, but that program really taught me how to think of myself not just as a reporter, but more as a documentarian. Well, also just to work much more with sound, kind of much more of a rich listening experience. So I think 
ever since then, I've gone about my work a little bit differently. The instructor from that, Rob Rosenthal, he actually produces a really great podcast called How Sound, which is an extension of what he did, like picking apart stories and teaching people how pieces are made. He now teaches at this place called the Transom Story Workshop out by Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And that was really great. That was actually before I got the job in D.C. But now I was exposed to the public radio, the NPR world. So after I finished working in D.C., moved back to New Jersey, started looking and applying for jobs, continued doing some more freelance reporting, applied for literally every radio job I could find online, <laughs> literally from Bethel, Alaska to Dilly, East Timor, somehow ended up in Norman, Oklahoma, um, which I wow. remember, you know, this is just like every random place I saw. I remember applying and then they interviewed me on the phone and I guess they liked me and then they wanted to fly me out for a second interview. And I remember saying to my mother at the time, I said, Norman, Oklahoma sounds like the most boring place in the world. But they ended up hiring me as news director at, wow. uh, I'm trying to remember what age I was, but it was pretty young. And I ended up there for four and a half years. It was a small public radio station just outside of Oklahoma City. It's in a college town there where the University of Oklahoma is. And I didn't really direct anyone. I, they called me, the news director was my title, but I guess I was self-directed. <laughs> um, mostly I was, for the most part, the sole reporter. And sometimes I'd have to like host all things considered, like locally, the newscasts and the weather and the traffic coming on several times an hour. And there were days when I'd have to put on a suit and tie and go to the Capitol and record a press conference with the governor. And then the next day I would be out at a rattlesnake festival in southwest Oklahoma or whatever. And I got to do a fair amount of national reporting for NPR just because there's so few public radio reporters in the middle of the country and they're always hungry for stuff from middle America. And there seemed to be a fair amount of national news there, a lot of it being severe weather, of course, uh, right. tornadoes and so forth. So I got to really get a lot of experience. And and I feel like I had a lot of opportunities by going to a smaller station in a smaller city. I always recommend that for people who are just starting out. I, I tell them, if you have the freedom, rather than trying to make a name for yourself and get experience starting off in New York or Chicago or L.A. or wherever, if you're willing to pick up and move to the middle of nowhere, you'll really get a lot of great experience. It'll be a really great opportunity. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, my first job was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina at the Sun News, mm -hmm. and that was a great bit of experience, even though it seems almost unrelated to what I did. everything I did after that. I think it did set up a lot of the basic skills and stuff. So you would go to a rattlesnake festival, you would go record this press conference, then I imagine have to rush back, edit it, get it out right away. It sounds like the hours would have been just as brutal as at Pacifica. It was a lot of work as well. The one nice thing was that I had a lot of freedom. I could basically do whatever story I wanted. I didn't really, you know, I had my program director I worked under, but there wasn't like a regular editor. I was the editor and the producer and the reporter. So I could choose whatever stories I wanted to cover for the most part. And so, yeah, a lot of the pressure was, I guess, self-imposed that, okay, the new legislative session is starting. So I've got to interview the Democratic head of the House and Senate and the Republican head of the House and Senate, whatever, in the state. And there were like certain traditions I started while I was there. One of the shows we were carrying ended. And so suddenly we had this slot on Monday mornings. And I maybe foolishly in retrospect, but I said, hey, it's kind of rare that we get a slot that opens up like this. Can we grab it for like local content instead of like some other national show? So we took it. So then that was like an hour every Monday morning that I had to fill with content. But it gave me this space where I could experiment and try things 
things out and produce these long documentaries. And I did this whole thing about ballot access in Oklahoma, which sounds kind of boring and dry, but Oklahoma has like the strictest requirements, or at least it did in the country for third parties or independent candidates to get on the ballot. And so I did this whole big investigative thing about that. And then just some fun things as well about the film industry, how they're trying to attract film companies from Hollywood or all sorts of things I did. And yeah, that was really cool. But over time, eventually, like I said, I was there four and a half years and you reach a certain point where, as I was kind of referring to earlier, like it's great to be able to experiment and try things out and you could learn a lot doing that. But at a certain point, you really need like a regular editor, I think, to work under to improve your skills. And I would have that occasionally when I'd produce stuff nationally for NPR or for the BBC or whoever would call me. But not like regularly on a day in day out basis did I have someone who was helping me improve what I was doing. So at a certain point, I realized that in order to get better at what I do, it really would be good to, you know, if anything, it's kind of taking a step down from having this fancy title of news director to just being a reporter again, like actually working under someone. Yeah, the title was great, especially at a young age. I was kind of unheard of at whatever age I was in my mid-20s to be hired as a news director. And it looks great in a resume and all that. But honestly, I don't want to necessarily deal with the management stuff and the paperwork and everything. I just want to be a reporter. I want to be getting out there and having cool experiences and documenting interesting things and meeting people and going to interesting places. Like I'd much rather prefer to be doing that. So that's what I've aimed to do ever since. Cool. And how does it work when you get called up by national NPR, BBC or whatever? I've always kind of wondered that. I mean, if you're an affiliate, the idea is you you do the reporting and use it on the local station, use it on NPR. Or do they pay you to extra to do these things? I've always been oh, curious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they definitely pay you. A lot of times it would just be where NPR would I mean, over time, you develop a relationship. You know, they have like bureau chiefs for different parts of the country. So Oklahoma is kind of a weird place, partially Midwest, partially South. We were considered for NPR's standards in the Southern region. So we had our Southern bureau chief. His name was Russell Lewis. He's a really excellent editor. I really liked working with him. I mean, he was based at the time in Birmingham. I believe first he was in New Orleans and then in Birmingham, Alabama. So I would pitch stories to him occasionally, or he would reach out to me and say, hey, there's this story in your region. We're always trying to get more stories from your part of the country on. Are you interested in doing this? And it would be oftentimes like a standard NPR story might be three and a half minutes or so that would run on one of their national programs, like All Things Considered or Morning Edition or Day to Day. And so I would write the script work on it. He would help me with the edits. And I don't do the physical editing of the tape the way NPR works, or at least the way it used to work is you send them the raw clips of tape, and then they have people who do the physical cutting of tape on their end. But he would help with all the paper edits of and the scripting and all of that. And then independently of that, there's also the NPR news newscast where they have like a hotline number 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If there's some kind of breaking news or something, I could email them or call them, pitch them a story. It's just like 30 or 40 seconds. Sometimes it'll have a little clip of tape in there. And that's a really easy way to get on the air if there's some big news. Like when we had a whole string of wildfires, there were several weeks where I was doing stories for them pretty much every night. I do two versions of the story like seven days a week because these wildfires wouldn't stop. And people, friends around the country were emailing me and calling me and saying, hey, I heard you on the radio. So by being in a place like that, I got to do a fair amount of national reporting like that, which was great. That's cool. 
And I mean, you do that on top of your, your day job or is it just kind of understood that when these guys call up, you can take time off your job to do that? Yeah. I mean, these pieces I would do for like national NPR or wherever, they would usually also air on our local station. Like our station carries NPR programming. So I do something for the NPR newscast, but then it trickles down to our local station's airwaves. And they liked when I did that because it means a lot to our local listeners in Oklahoma when they hear our local reporter being on the national radio, especially in Oklahoma, because I feel like Oklahomans have an inferiority complex. It's kind of this state that's forgotten about in the middle of the country. People think of it as flyover territory. And so when they hear that whatever's happening here locally is making national news. Granted, in Oklahoma, it wasn't always positive national news. Sure. Um, but they liked also hearing our local reporter when they say, uh, Scott Green from member station KGOU in Norman, Oklahoma has this report or whatever. They, they loved hearing that. And then we would get comments from listeners. So our station was always happy when I could do stuff like that. That makes sense. And yeah, four and a half years in small town Oklahoma, or a college town at least, seems like a lot. I can imagine you might have been itching to get out of there after that. Where, so where do you go next? Well, again, I wasn't in the middle of nowhere. Like, as you said, it was a college town. I was near Oklahoma City. And I feel like wherever I go, you could kind of meet your people and find interesting places. So, you know, it's not like I was in the middle of a, a field with cows or something, but I didn't have to drive that right. far away to find that. But I enjoyed my time there. I don't regret going there at all. It was a really great, real kind of start to my career after what I did in Washington. So eventually, after four and a half years, I moved back to New Jersey. The most pressing reason was because I had a death in the family and had to go back to handle all of that. But I was also starting to think about moving on anyway. As I said, I'd, I felt like I'd reached my limits of everything I had done there, and it was time to move on. So um, moved back to New Jersey. It took me a little while to handle the family stuff and started doing some freelance reporting again. I'd had a relationship with some people at WNYC, the big public radio station in New York City. Started doing some freelance reporting for them and... Yeah, I guess what happened first was I got hired as a part-time producer on this daily national talk show called The Takeaway, where I was there like during the live show. So, you know, it started at 6 a.m. every weekday. Mm -hmm. um, so I drive in from New Jersey to, into the city. And my job was to listen to the show as it went out live over the air, take notes and any mistakes or anything they needed to edit out or fix for the rebroadcast. I would cut that and work with a team of other people. Yeah, I did that for, I don't know, a year, a couple of years, something like that. And then their show transformed and that ended. But I started doing more freelance reporting for the state. And then I remember there was a Saturday morning in October in, I guess it was 2012, where I got a call from my editor, Nancy Solomon at the station. And she said, hey, there's this big storm coming. Do you want to like drive down the Jersey Shore and just interview people who are like boarding up their businesses or whatever and just do something for our station? So I drove down, did that. And this ended up being Superstorm Sandy. And they said, oh, this looks like it's going to be pretty big. Would you mind actually staying overnight there and doing some more reporting for us? So I hadn't planned this at all. Didn't have a change of clothing. Had to call back home and find a dog walker, all this stuff. It was hard to even find a place to stay because all the hotels, like everyone who lived anywhere near the shore had fled from the coast. So all the hotels were booked up. I somehow managed to find a bed and breakfast like six blocks from the ocean, which is a little scary, but far enough away that I wasn't afraid of flooding. But there were some big tall trees around it. I was afraid something would come crashing down in the middle of the night, but stayed there. Power ended up going out. So we were in the total darkness with flashlights. 
and did some reporting the next day. Then they asked me to stay over another night. And it was just crazy. I had never been in an experience reporting like that, where you're just in the middle of everything, just this crazy experience. And I feel guilty saying this, but it was actually, it was fun. It's just being in that kind of scenario where you hardly have to look for stories like things are just happening around you. Like I'm just driving up the street and I see this woman walking out of her business sobbing. And so I pull over the car and talk to her and it ends up, she had just entered the business the morning after the storm flooded and destroyed everything she owned. And then I was on the air on national radio 20 minutes later telling them about the conversation I had just had. So that was a really incredible experience. Did some reporting on Sandy and then coming out of that, WNYC hired me along with New Jersey Spotlight, this news website. They kind of hired me together to do both radio and print reporting for the next couple of years of investigative reporting, tracking the long-term recovery of Superstorm Sandy in New Jersey. Because WNYC, even though I think it's like a third of their listeners are on this side of the Hudson River in New Jersey, historically, they just haven't had many reporters here. They were just so focused on the city itself. And so I happened to live in New Jersey. I knew my way around. I had a car. So I was in the right place at the right time to do this reporting for them. And yes, I spent several years doing this kind of investigative reporting, tracking the recovery in the state, how the state of New Jersey handled the storm recovery, how they botched a lot of things with Governor Chris Christie, who was the governor at the time, and did a lot of investigative reporting, tracking the federal aid money, uh, along with a team of other reporters. We actually won a Peabody Award for some of the reporting. And it was really interesting and exciting. And it was a really great experience. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing opportunity. And so... How did that wrap up then and and what happens next? I mean, with something like that, I imagine it's hard to actually, where does the recovery, it doesn't have a set end point where they say, yeah, we're done now. Um, So how does that wrap up and what happens next? Well, originally they hired me for just a year and then they liked what I was doing and they got some more grant money. The grantors liked what I was doing and so they found money for me to stick around for a second year. And obviously with an enormous storm like this, you have so many homes that were destroyed and their long-term recovery, it's going to take even more years than that. But eventually after two years of covering this straight and just doing every possible angle you could think of about the storm recovery, climate change, like is this going to happen again in the future with more flooding? How does the federal flood insurance program, how does that work? And pressure between people who want to rebuild and the interests of developers versus climate change people who say you shouldn't give money to people who are going to rebuild in the same place and have to bail them out again from the taxpayers. Every possible angle, but eventually after two years, the money did run out. And so that position ended. And they called me back a few times since then, like I think on the third anniversary, the fifth anniversary, I've done some more stories for them. But for the most part, I moved on from that and did a little more freelance reporting. But then I moved on to the next phase of my reporting career, I guess, where I've always loved doing international reporting and traveling ever since I was young. Even going back to college, there was this reporting trip I went on just when I was in college. And the coolest experiences I've ever had as a journalist have been when I've been abroad. So I, for the longest time, wanted to be a foreign correspondent or something in that vein. And then this opportunity came up where My brother and I, we don't have a lot of close family left in the area, so we started this tradition of taking a big trip every year, like over Christmas and New Year's. And we went one year to Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands. We went to Thailand and Cambodia, you know, various different places. 
And one year we went to Cuba and while we were there, we don't usually do like the tour group thing, but Cuba, we figured just logistics of traveling around, it might be a little easier. So we were like in a tour and we met this woman, Rosie and her husband, Alan. Rosie's a Brit, but she lives in Australia now and really cool, really adventurous, a bit older than us, like middle-aged and we just became good friends with her as well as the rest of the people in our tour group. We had some issues. Our tour guide got drunk and abandoned our group one evening. <laughs> and so all, all of us in the tour group bonded and kept in touch after the tour was over. And we went home and started a Facebook group and everything. And so we became good friends with Rosie and her husband, Alan. And she contacted us a number of months later. And she said, hey, you know, I know you two guys are pretty adventurous. I'm planning on taking this crazy trip with my best friend Jane and we're going to actually do this thing for charity we're going to be driving all the way from the UK to Mongolia in a little tiny car would you and your brother like to join us and I said that sounds that sounds really amazing I, I had known she was doing this but for some reason until she invited us the thought didn't occur to me oh I could do this too but then when she invited us it was like whoa this sounds so cool and my brother was totally on board as well and it was pretty soon after I decided okay we want to do this that I thought well hey I should start a podcast about this it's just perfectly suited for just the experience of traveling. And I've always thought that the power of audio more than print is that it really transports you places. Like when you listen to something, you really can feel like you're there. And good writing could do that as well, but sound even more so. So I'd be able to travel across, it's like a quarter of the way around the world, get this amazing sound. And then also just all the planning for the trip itself. Like I could do a whole episode on what do you pack for a trip like this? What kind of car do you drive? Getting your visas, all that kind of stuff. So I decided to start this podcast. And so we took months and months of planning. We embarked on this trip and I documented the whole thing. Yeah, it's called Far From Home. Mm -hmm. So I've listened to about the first 11 episodes of that season. And oh, cool. then I started jumping around a bit more and listening to you now have three seasons. Um, but I think it's an amazing idea. I mean, I personally have heard of Mongol Rally, wanted to do it, but it's just like hard to organize your life in a way to take that much time off and go do something right. like that. I'm listening to the show, so I feel like it really does do a great job of putting you there. And the Turkmenistan episode is particularly great. You know, nobody, very, very few people get to go there. And yeah, I was pretty amazed by that one. I'm curious, now that you have some distance from it, how was the reaction of the show? Do you think you accomplished what you set out to do? And uh, how has it worked out as uh, the logistics of making this the main focus of your career in the past couple of years? Well, it was definitely a really big undertaking. And I, I think I, I didn't totally realize when I got into it, the original trailer that I put out for the show was, okay, over the next, I don't know what I said, six or eight episodes or whatever, I'm going to be telling this story. So the trip took us 52 days, so like seven weeks. I ended up recording 65 hours of tape that Whoa. I then had to sort through. It turned into two dozen episodes that rolled out over like a couple years. And it just took a long time to sort through all that material, documenting everything, as I said, from just how the idea first came to us to the planning. I did a whole episode, like I said, on buying the car and then on each of the countries that we went through along the way. What was it like 19 or 20 countries, I think, on the trip. So just documenting that whole experience from 
Turkmenistan, which is after North Korea. It's like the most authoritarian country in the world. Very few Westerners get to go to, to driving across Iran as American tourists. Going across Turkey, this is in the summer of 2016. We ended up at the Turkish border like six days after an attempted coup, um, which, you know, made us a little bit nervous, but it, everything ended up being fine. Having all kinds of car issues breaking down and overheating in Turkmenistan, having to get towed across the border to Uzbekistan, waiting a week for a new head gasket to get shipped from Dubai, and then getting stranded in the middle of Mongolia and having to contact the U.S. Embassy by satellite. And they had to send some people to come tow us out and rescue us. Just kind of crazy stories, being able to document all this. I'm really proud of what I did. I, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And then, so as I said, that turned into like two dozen half hour episodes, that whole first season. It's the longest first season ever. And then I decided I just want to keep this going. So I got this harebrained idea. Okay, I've gotten all the way these 11,000 miles to Mongolia. Why don't I drive all the way back to Europe? Um, so I decided to do that, not going the same way I came through Central Asia, but more kind of a northern route across Siberia. We stopped in Tuva, and I did a whole episode where I took Tuvan throat singing lessons. We went to Chernobyl, which is the most fascinating, eeriest place I've ever been, and then back across Europe. And so I have a whole second season of episodes documenting some stories from my trip back, as well well as since then I've continued traveling and gotten more fascinating stories from everywhere from Cambodia to Peru to all over the world and so I as you've mentioned I've now just finished my third season of continuing to tell stories from my travels and yeah I'd love to keep it going I'm still growing the podcast the audience is still fairly small I've gotten some nice mentions in places like the Washington Post and the Guardian and I've gotten some travel journalism awards things like that but I feel like it's still very much kind of under the radar so I'm hoping to get some more attention and do some more partnerships with other big podcasts. I've actually partnered with some other shows, some notable shows, and done some stories for them, which have also aired on my own program, programs like 99% Invisible and Planet Money from NPR. So I'm hoping to do more of that kind of thing. That's great. And yeah, we connected through On Spec, which is another podcast. I interviewed the host, Fariba Nawa, a few episodes back. Yes. And you guys collaborated as well. So right. what was I going to ask? I mean, the, the podcast is amazing. Like I said, it's a trip I wanted to take and I totally can just live vicariously through your trip now. I, you know, I love all those details as somebody who travels a lot myself on the logistics, the cars, the visas, all of that sort of thing. I mean, it does sound like just a mammoth editing task. So you did the whole trip and then did all the editing afterwards, I presume? There were a few episodes that I released before the trip of like the planning, how the idea first came about, that sort of thing. My original intention was to do two seasons. So the first season would be the prep work ahead of the trip. And then I would take a break, go on the trip and then produce a second season of the trip itself. What happened was that just the planning for this trip just took over my life. As you can imagine, just months and months of, of planning the route and getting the visas. That's a crazy process, having to send out your passport to all these embassies and the vaccinations and what kind of gear do we need. And so I just had to drop producing regular episodes at that point when that kind of took over my life. So, and then I felt guilty because there was a big gap in time. And so I somehow managed to put out an episode while we were on the road, which was absolutely crazy. Like we're in this little tiny car driving across Iran <laughs> and I'm like sitting cramped in the back seat with my headphones on trying to hear over the noise of we have the windows wide open because this little tiny car, there's no air conditioning. And it's like whatever temperature it is in the middle of the desert in Iran. <laughs> so I'm trying to kind of edit on my laptop in the back seat there. And I somehow managed to 
edit an episode from the road and release it. But I quickly realized this isn't really sustainable. I can't do this. So after that, I just ended up putting the rest of it off and producing the rest of the series after we got done with the trip, after I got back home. And I was curious, since you're everywhere with a recorder in your hand, asking questions with a mind for making it into an episode later, how do you think it changed the nature of the trip documenting it in this way? Well, a few things. First of all, because I was traveling with my brother and with our friends, Rosie and Jane. And so when you spend a lot of time with people, they quickly get used to there being a microphone. And that's like the goal of every reporter to walk into a situation, but become a fly on the wall. Especially, I think it's a little bit easier with you as a print reporter versus like having a microphone or especially like a cameraman, like people get afraid around cameras and they they quickly clam up. But yeah, the more gear you have, people tend to be a little bit nervous and they talk differently or whatever. But the more time you spend with them, also the more comfortable they become and they forget about it. So I love even on regular run-of-the-mill stories, like the more time I could spend with a person or in a place, I feel like the better tape I get. So I mean, there were definitely times where when you're with these people traveling for so long where frustrations build and people get angry or whatever, and they're like, okay, this isn't for, don't record this part or whatever. You know, there were definitely times like that. But for the most part, that ended up being fine. Obviously, There were instances where I were driving across Iran and Turkmenistan and all these places where I couldn't be actively and openly reporting as a journalist. And I couldn't bring my big fancy gear from back home because even if they didn't see me, they'd be going through our bags at the border checkpoints. And I I just didn't want to be flagged as a journalist and kicked out of their country or, or worse. So I had to bring small, discreet gear that could capture what I needed without sticking out too much. And there were times when even that was too flashy. There are sections that I just recorded on my cell phone. Like there was this whole experience in Tajikistan where we were pulled over by these kind of shady, corrupt traffic cops who were trying to say that we were speeding. They just aimed their radar detector gun at like another car. And then they tried to say that it was us and they were trying to give us a ticket. But then they were trying to take a bribe from us. And I got this whole exchange, like I recorded all on my cell phone, which I probably couldn't have gotten if it was just my microphone there. And they're trying to extract money for us. And we ended up finally giving them some vodka and getting out of that situation. But by being able to record undercover in a circumstance like that, I was able to get a lot more. Sure. And I guess I'm curious, to whatever extent you're willing to talk about it, we certainly don't have to talk about it, but how the economics of doing a podcast like this work out. Have you gotten grants? Do you use advertising? Do you still do a lot of freelancing on the side and support yourself that way? Or how how does that work out for somebody who might see something like this and wonder, how could I make that work? Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm making very little money from the podcast so far. I'm still working up towards that goal. I mean, I still have a, a ways to go and I have a long to-do list of promotional sorts of things that people have suggested that I try to start making money from it and have it become a sustainable part of my work, which is my goal. In the meantime, I'm doing a variety of things. I'm doing freelance work for various places. As I said, I, I'll occasionally produce 
stories for other shows like 99% Invisible and Planet Money. So they'll pay me and in some cases pay very well for stories. And it'll also give me some good exposure, which is nice. And they'll even sometimes even cover all my expenses of traveling and all of that. I even have some housemates, so I'm I'm a landlord, so I get some money that way. So it's a variety of different things that I kind of patch together. But the eventual goal is to be able to get enough listeners. And I'm working on my pitch deck now to pitch my podcast to different advertisers and podcast companies to see if someone will pick the show up to try to make it into more of a sustainable full-time thing. Right. That makes sense. And... It seems like public radio is this weird feudal system of a million different overlapping programs and stations and things like that, and that somehow all manages to work in the end. And, you know, based on a lot of freelancers and things like that, I don't know if there's a question (laughs) in there, but I guess just if you have anything to say about how, I don't know, radio has changed since you've been doing it or how this system all continues to shamble along, even if from the outside, I I don't really understand how it all operates. It's this big network that I guess to an outsider would seem confusing and overwhelming. But like if you pitch a story, generally you have like your editor for your region of the country and then they'll in turn pitch it to the various different shows. So there's gatekeepers and it's not as confusing, I think, behind the scenes and not as big and unruly as it might seem. I used to feel that way about the BBC too. Like you tune in every time you listen, there's like a different host. It's like, how many people can there be? But then when you think about it, it's actually a lot smaller in some ways than you think it is. But it's funny, so much of the world has changed in the last few years where so many people I know who worked in public radio have now left and are now working for podcasts, like money-making podcasts in the private sector. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but after having this big background in public radio, I barely listen to the radio anymore. I think part of it is so much is on demand nowadays. I guess Netflix started this whole trend where people want to consume the media they want at the time they want and in the quantity they want, as opposed to just putting on the radio and getting who knows what, and maybe this story's boring and I want to skip past it, or you can't skip past it if it's on the radio, you know, versus a podcast, I could choose what I want to listen to. And okay, I'm not feeling this episode, let me move on to the next thing. And there's so many great podcasts out there now, which makes my job a little bit harder, because it's hard to get noticed. Like there's so much competition for people's ears, and they have limited amount of time to listen in a day or a week. Maybe they have a little bit more time now with the pandemic. But on the other hand, maybe they're working from home. So they're not commuting. So that's less time in the car to listen. You know, I don't know. But Things have definitely changed, and I feel like a lot of the interest and attention has gravitated away from public radio into podcasting. I'm still really glad public radio is around, and a lot of the best podcasters came from the public radio world, and I certainly hope it continues. But, you know, NPR itself now has gotten much more into podcasting, and I believe they're making most of their money from podcasting underwriting at this point, so that they've been trying to evolve with the times. That's super interesting. Yeah, I knew they, I mean, a lot of their shows are also available as podcasts, but that's interesting if they're actually making more money off of that. Yeah, well, there's been this tension between the local stations and NPR because 
NPR puts all of its national shows out as a podcast, then the local stations could potentially suffer. They're like, why are people even going to listen to us if they could just listen to a podcast? So for the longest time, NPR's big, what they call the tentpole shows, the beginning and end of the day, morning edition and all things considered, they were available online to listen like as individual stories, but you couldn't download the whole show and listen as a podcast. And so just recently, they've started this new experiment partnering with local stations where they'll release these shows as a podcast, but with the local stations putting in their hosting and their local stories in with it. So it's like you're listening to the local public radio station, but as a podcast mixed in with the national shows, it's this hybrid compromise that they've reached. But yeah, that's definitely been a big challenge because NPR doesn't actually own any radio stations. They're this network, but all of the stations in the network are independently owned and operated by local community groups or local colleges or school boards or whatever around the country. And they're trying to figure out what their future is in this new podcasting world. Right. So uh, is there anything else you want to talk about, kind of more about your biography before we move on to talk about a story or two? Uh, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. I guess I usually like to start with talking about actually a story that got away, a story you weren't able to do for for whatever reason, like reporting trip went bad. I guess in your case, you lost the recording. You couldn't sell it. You couldn't make it work for whatever reason. If there's anything particular that comes to mind, it can be international. It can be domestic. There have been a lot of stories that have fallen through for one reason or another. It's hard, especially when you're traveling and you get off the plane somewhere and you try to do a fair amount of planning ahead of time and reach out to people by email and phone and set things up. But sometimes it just takes being there on the ground to finalize things, especially in certain places where people are flaky or there's just a cultural thing where they're bad at getting back to you or whatever it is. And so you're in a place for maybe a week or two and you're trying to set things up on the ground and certain stories inevitably fall through for one reason or another. That's why I always try to come up with as many stories as possible. At least some of them will work out. And yeah, there have been several, even recently I could think of that I've tried to do that didn't work. One of them was when, again, as I said, my brother and I take this big trip every year over Christmas and New Year's. And we were in Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska last year, you know, in the middle of December. We thought it would be, <laughs> I, I won this journal, I won this trip from this journalism reporting competition. I won a hotel stay there. And I figured it would be cool. We'll go experience the winter in Alaska, see the Northern Lights. And uh, we went dog sledding, which was one of the coolest things I've ever done. Oh, cool. And I tried to document that and record that experience. And I should have thought it through more and thought of the logistics of it. My gear just did not take well to the freezing. It was like negative 20 Fahrenheit. And and my gear just froze up and the batteries kept dying. The screen would go off. It was like the buttons weren't working. I spoke later to someone. They said, you need to get like foot warmers and like tape them to the side of the recorder to keep it warm. I, I know that now, but I should have thought that through. I got the first few minutes interviewing this woman who's been doing dog sledding for years. And then my gear just froze up and my fingers were also freezing. Like, okay, what's the priority here? I got to keep myself warm more than my gear. So that unfortunately fell through. It would have been a, a cool story but I couldn't do that. Another recent one was when I was in Puerto Rico last December, staying with a friend there. And one of the stories I really wanted to do there was they have this thing called Pitorro, which is like Puerto Rican moonshine that like everyone uh, knows their person who they get Pitorro from. And I don't even know how they make it. This guy was telling us they ferment all kinds of, I, I don't even know what they, and then they put flavorings. A lot of times it's really sweet and they put almonds and cloves and different things, especially around the 
the holiday times, like around Christmas or whatever, along with their coquito, which is a Puerto Rican eggnog. They drink plenty of pitoro. And a lot of times it's really strong, like as you'd think of moonshine being. And I met this guy who said, oh, I have a friend who makes all this pitoro. He's been doing it for years and I could introduce you. I could take you out to him. And, you know, I don't think he'll mind, even though it's technically illegal, but, you know, I don't need to identify him. And that sounded really cool. And I was really excited about that. But just culturally in Puerto Rico, I've heard this from several people. People are not very good at following through on things and returning phone calls or emails. And I must have tried following up with him like a dozen times. And I don't know, it just fell through and I didn't hear back from him. And not even to say, oh, I spoke to my friend and it didn't work out. Like I just dead silence. So that was really a shame because I was really looking forward to that. That would have been a cool story. Yeah, I get it. It's illegal. There's a lot of that sort of stuff in Brazil. Like we once met this guy who owned an illegal gold mining boat that goes out in the river. And, you know, it's horrible for the environment. And uh, the photographer and videographer I was with got super excited about it. So you kind of chat to him. And but the guy, you know, nobody in Brazil, like everybody's so friendly, nobody's going to tell you like, no, Mm. outright, but that doesn't necessarily mean he wants to show you this illegal thing. Um, Right. So I know the feeling for sure. I mean, it didn't come together in the end. It was fine. But those are two good examples, diverse examples of how things can go sideways. Cool. And then the second one is a story you're proud of and getting the story behind the story, telling us what it's about, how you got the idea, how you went about it, or if there's any story behind the reaction or anything like that, if there's one particular one you wanted to highlight. I guess I could talk about from more of the domestic side when I was still covering the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy here in New Jersey and the big story which ended up getting me the Peabody Award, which I shared with my colleagues for some of the reporting they had done, where by covering one topic for a long time, you develop sources and people who are really willing to trust you and leak information to you and keep you in the loop about what's going on. And I was reporting on the state of New Jersey and the administration of Governor Chris Christie's handling of the storm recovery. And there had already been some talk of, if you remember the whole Bridgegate fiasco, where Governor Christie's people kind of closed a lane of the George Washington Bridge into New York as kind of revenge for the local mayor of Fort Lee because he didn't endorse Christie for his reelection bid. There was already a lot of speculation that the governor was punishing people who didn't go along with him and that some of that could have also involved the treatment of towns and cities that were trying to recover from the storm. There were some allegations from Don Zimmer, who was the mayor of the city of Hoboken, New Jersey, right across the river from New York. And so someone leaked to us this internal government document pertaining to this fund that the state had set up where towns and cities applied for resiliency money. This is federal money from, I guess it was from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, where this was money that towns and cities could apply for to get like backup generators to like keep the lights on in future storms, things like that. Generators for like essential, like police stations, fire stations, shelters, things like that. And so the state released press releases of who they were going to give this money to, the list of towns and cities and how much they were all getting. And some things looked strange on there, like there were towns and cities, like little tiny towns that were not at all affected by the storm and didn't have any history of flooding that got hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then places like Hoboken and Jersey City that given how badly they were affected and how much flooding they got, got relatively little money and things didn't seem right. And so someone leaked us this internal document, this spreadsheet 
that was how the state calculated how much funding they were giving to each of these towns and cities, where they had this whole matrix where they assigned points to different towns and cities based on a number of different factors, like how much history of flooding they had had, different things like that. And so we use the state's own criteria, myself with a whole team of the data team at WNYC, New York Public Radio. And I redid the scoring for a number of these towns and cities. And I found all sorts of errors and mistakes. And the question is, were they honest mistakes? Or were they purposely trying to cheat towns out of money that they were due? It's hard to say. I don't have any solid evidence to prove one way or the other. But it was just a mess. So I ran this whole series. You know, I wrote this article, it was probably seven or 10,000 words. It was a very long article. And we had the whole data team show the charts that I made and do their own analysis. And we made a map of how much these towns and cities received versus how much they should have received by the state's own criteria. And the state kind of got egg on their face after that. It was this whole big scandal and it got a ton of attention and they had to go back and redo their scoring. And in the end, places like Hoboken and Jersey City ended up getting hundreds of thousands of dollars more than they would have if my story hadn't come out. And that in conjunction with the whole breaking of the Bridgegate story and several other stories my colleagues had done together as a package got a Peabody Award. So I think we were all proud of that. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations. The Peabody's a really big deal. And, you know, the impact, hundreds of thousands of dollars, like that's as tangible as it gets in journalism as far as right. uh, having big impact. So that's pretty amazing. Thank you. Cool. So, yeah, I think the next thing is just then the lightning round. Okay. Do you feel ready? I guess as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> yeah. The first question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? And I mean more for work than for your general knowledge. So I'm not looking for the New York Times. I'm looking for something that because you follow a certain issue or subject or something like that, you follow that people might not themselves read every day. I think part of what I do is just to be well-informed and kind of hear a lot of these stories of what's going on around the world. So, yeah, I don't know if there's specific publications I refer to. I mean, I do just, yeah, The Times, The Washington Post. I listen to a lot of podcasts of just daily news. Of, there's this one called Today Explained from Vox. I just try to take note of all the story ideas that might be interesting to me. I have this giant, I don't know if you're familiar with Trello. It's this online, you could create these spreadsheets and columns. It's a good way to organize your thoughts. And so a lot of times I'll hear some story in the news or something, and I'll take note of it. Maybe it's gotten a little bit of attention domestically, but not so big. It's something happening in another part of the world. And I like to return to a story a lot of times long after most reporters have forgotten about it. For example, I heard this Antigua and Barbuda was really damaged by Hurricane Irma a few years ago in, in 2017, I think. And I thought, okay, that would be interesting to like check in a few years later to see whatever happened with that. So like three years later, I looked into it and I found out, hey, there's this whole big fascinating story about rebuilding there. And so I ended up pitching that to Planet Money and we went down there and did that story. So it's not a, like a particular source that I refer to a lot. I think it's just gleaning interesting tidbits from lots of different sources and trying to keep track of all. I have, it's like I said, it's this enormous spreadsheet divided by like continent of like all these different possible story ideas of future things I might want to pursue. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun? So I'm a really big podcast listener and yeah, there's so many, like dozens of podcasts I listen to, like 99% Invisible, Reply All. One of them 
I'm going to highlight, which is probably sounds like a weird choice when you ask about something I listen to for fun, but it's called An Arm and a Leg. And it's by my colleague, Dan Weissman. It's actually a show about the cost of healthcare in the US, which doesn't sound like something someone would listen to for fun, but it's actually <laughs> weirdly funny and entertaining and actually inspiring. And most of the episodes seem to go by really quick. It's like, it just captures me in and I'm like, wow, it's already over. Like, it's just, he's a really good storyteller. And some of the stories are just off the walls. You could imagine people being charged, whatever, for a Band-Aid or whatever. And it's just really well produced. And I just genuinely enjoy listening to it. So I highly recommend An Arm and a Leg. Cool. I haven't heard about it. That's a good shout. And then what's the best journalistic article piece, again, in whatever medium, but journalistic in nature, that you've consumed lately? Actually... I guess it was about a year ago, so not super recently, but it's the strongest and most memorable piece of journalism I think I've ever heard was the second season of the In the Dark podcast, which was about Curtis Flowers, this African-American guy from this little tiny town in Mississippi who had been on death row for like 20 years for a few murders that he actually didn't commit. And it was his whole investigative series where it was about the local prosecutor who was white who kept charging him and failing after judges ruled that there was prosecutorial misconduct or racial bias in the jury selection process. And there were mistrials. So he charged this guy, Curtis Flowers, six times, which is kind of unheard of. He kept failing and then he'd bring it again. And that's when, you know, the reporters heard about this case and decided to start investigating. They actually moved from Minneapolis, where American public media is based, that they work for. They actually moved from Minneapolis to Mississippi to report full time on this story. And they methodically reinvestigated it, picked it apart. They took a fresh look at all the evidence, which actually turned out to be flimsy. And they got a bunch of people who had testified against Curtis in the original trials to recant their testimony. And they spent months sorting through the records of like every single case that the prosecutor, Doug Evans, had ever tried to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had a pretty long record of disproportionately striking black jurors. And then as a result of the reporting, they won a bunch of big awards, like a Polk Award, a DuPont, a Peabody. But more importantly, they got Curtis Flowers' case to go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he actually won his freedom. So it's some of the best investigative journalism I've ever heard. I highly recommend it in the dark. The first season was good, too, but especially the second season was really great. That's good to know, because, yeah, I listened to most of the first season, but I did not get to the second season. I didn't know it went in that kind of more investigative direction. Let's see. And then is there any particular subject matter you read into a lot that isn't specifically related to your job? I suspect you probably might hear this in a lot of foreign correspondents you speak to, but I'm really into food, especially since the pandemic started. I feel like I've actually eaten better than I've ever eaten doing a ton <laughs> of cooking. I've really gotten into Otolenghi's cookbooks. I don't know if you know y- Yotam Otolenghi. He's this, I think he's Israeli, this chef, but he has influences from all over the world. And I don't think I've cooked anything in any of his cookbooks that I haven't liked. So shout out to Otolenghi and Milk Street, which is this website and radio show run by this guy, Christopher Kimball, who used to be on America's Test Kitchen. You could like get a membership to that. I just joined recently. And there's this really interesting philosophy. He says that people think of French cooking as the best cuisine in the world, the fanciest, whatever. But actually, he was saying that French cooking is in many ways kind of bland and it's just simple ingredients and it's so hard to cook well. The complete opposite of like Julia Childs would say that, you know, if you want good French food, just go to a fancy French restaurant. But if you're going to cook food at home, 
they're saying that, well, you should cook some kind of Asian food, Indian food, Southeast Asian food, something because with all the spices and everything, it's kind of hard for it to be bad. Like it's really easy to just mix in a few spices and it'll be really delicious. And that's what my housemates and I have been doing a ton of like, especially Asian cooking, but cooking from all over, over the last few months. The next one is how do you manage your work-life balance or do you even believe in it? I mean, I can't say I don't believe in it, but it's hard, I guess, especially with the pandemic. But even before that, because I primarily work for myself and work from home. So yeah, there will definitely be days where I'm working on some kind of project and I'm in the middle of editing something or whatever, and I get kind of in a zone and it's sometimes I get distracted and there's other stuff going on. So the times when I'm really kind of in the zone and I'm really paying attention, I just want to keep working. And I'm the kind of person I've always been where once I start something, I want to finish it, which means sometimes I might keep working till three, four in the morning. You know, I just want to keep going. And I've broken the cardinal rule of right now, my home office is a desk, which is I'm turning my head to the right. My bed is right here. It's right in my bedroom, which they say you should never do. You should have a separate space for your workspace, <laughs> which I keep meaning to do. I need to clean out the office in the basement. So, yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, I am also in the big house in the suburbs and there's always things that have my attention there. There's some kind of house repair or, as I said, cooking. I spend a ton of time in the kitchen. So sometimes I'm not spending enough time on work. So I feel like it swings back and forth. And it's much different than if I had an office that I go to where I've clearly defined work hours and home hours. It's blurred a lot, I feel like. And then is Twitter important to you? Not terribly because most of what I'm doing isn't breaking news or something. I mean, I'm curious just for my own self, especially with all the news recently. I've been spending a lot of time on Twitter more than usual. And there's lots of little tidbits of news that you find on there before they bubble up to being like a big story in the Washington Post or wherever. So I've been spending some time just to stay well informed recently and glean tidbits of information. I feel like what Twitter's really good for, for me, is keeping up with discussions of what fellow reporters in my industry are talking about. Like, like there's this whole big controversy going on right now, as you may have heard with the New York Times. Um, they have this podcast called The Daily, and they ran this whole series called Caliphate a few years ago where this reporter, Rukmini Kalamaki, and her producer, Andy Mills, went into ISIS territory and covered all these documents and everything. And at the time, it seemed like a really good series, and I liked it. But it turned out that after the fact, uh, one of the key people they interviewed in that series, this Canadian guy who claimed that he had actually gone to Syria and become a member of ISIS, um, he was a key part of their story, of their series. And it turned out that he was like fabricating everything, and he was charged recently by Canadian authorities with making up the story. Um, and so the New York Times had to retract their series, and they had to give back the Peabody Award that they'd won, and it was like this whole controversy. But in the aftermath, many of my fellow journalist colleagues think the New York Times didn't really go about things in the proper way to fully apologize. Uh, for example, Michael Barbaro, the host of The Daily, interviewed Dean Baquette, who's the executive editor at The Times. But uh, Michael didn't disclose that behind the scenes, he's actually engaged to the head of audio at The Times. Um, it was like this weird conflict of interest that wasn't really mentioned the way it should be. Um, and then there's also been this whole big controversy about Andy Mills, who, as 
I mentioned, was the producer on the show. The main reporter, Rukmini, was like taken off the ISIS terrorism beat and she's faced these penalties. While until recently, it didn't appear like Andy was being punished at all. So a lot of people were questioning why the two of them were treated differently. And on top of that, there were all these accusations that came out from a bunch of women who used to work with Andy that he'd harassed them or said or done all sorts of inappropriate things over the years. Um, And this all culminated with several public radio stations around the country that broadcast the daily deciding to pull the show from their airwaves uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, facing all this criticism, Andy finally announced just the other day that he was resigning. So all of this has been brewing behind the scenes for a number of weeks. And until recently, it wasn't actually covered anywhere except by my colleagues talking about it on Twitter uh, until eventually it started to get some mainstream media coverage. So that's really the only way I was able to find out about it. Twitter's really good for things like that. But in terms of my podcast, I actually find that the social media that works best for me and promoting my show and having followers and everything, oddly, is Instagram, which seems kind of weird. But it just seems like there's much more engagement on Instagram. When I post something, people will respond to it much more. Obviously, what I do with travel, that's very photogenic. And so I always have cool videos and photos. So I don't know, maybe it's just that I have a different audience following me on Instagram than Twitter, but I've just had much more success with that route. And Facebook, I don't have so much success either. And it's just Instagram more than anything else. Hmm. Maybe I have to, because I'm doing Twitter and Facebook for the podcast now. Maybe I should do more Instagram. I've just been using my personal Instagram. But yeah, I would say, you know, Facebook, I, I can't really tell if it's bringing me any tangible benefits to the podcast at all. Twitter, a little bit, just because so many journalists are on there. And like a large part of my audience is directed at fellow journalists. But yeah, maybe Instagram. I do want to go back to the Rukmini Kalamaki yeah. and uh, the... Or that whole thing, because I listened to most of that while walking home from work, to and from work, about half an hour a day back pre-pandemic. And, you know, I listened to it. I listened to that guy's story. I would say his story spans out over two or three episodes. And then after those two or three episodes, and this is what prompted me to stop listening, they actually did start giving like a lot of caveats. Well, well, you know, there are all these doubts we have and we try to check into them. And I thought that that was kind of built into the podcast that they didn't really know for sure it was true. And they kind of did make that clear. And that endlessly pissed me off because I'd already listened to three episodes (laughs) thinking it was true and I stopped listening. But at the same time, I was like, when all this came out, I was a bit like, well, didn't they kind of tell us that in one of the episodes that this might not be true? So I don't know, as somebody who maybe knows the ins and outs a little bit better, why is it such a big deal? Is It's because it was completely not true, so they shouldn't have done it at all, not just run it with caveats? Or what is the deal with that? I mean, it's been a while since I've listened, so I would need to go back and listen again. So it's kind of more fresh in my mind. But I guess people felt that looking back now that there were too many red flags and and that they had at the time a lot of warnings from like interpreters and other subject matter experts that they had consulted at the time who warned them, who said this guy is basically full of shit, that he doesn't have any credibility, like they shouldn't have given as much attention to him as they had like focusing, I think it was a, a whole episode basically to his claims. Not necessarily that they should have left him out completely, but that he shouldn't have gotten as much attention as he did, is the thinking. 
Okay, yeah. But it does seem like I don't get the level of backlash. And it also seems like where the blame has been placed does seem questionable and that editors all stood behind it and applauded it when it was winning awards and stuff like that. And now it's like all being blamed on this one reporter. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, not great. Yeah, that's the role of editors. Editors are supposed to step in and not just trust what a reporter. And and the New York Times' defense, one of their defenses they've said is that, well, we've historically worked more in print and we didn't give the same attention to audio as we did to print and we don't know how to do that, and which is kind of laughable to any of us who've worked on the public radio side and done documentaries because it's quite possible for audio journalists to have the same level of fact-checking and editorial oversight as print just because your audio doesn't mean your standards should be any different. Yeah, that makes sense to me. The next question is if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Maybe Anthony Bourdain. As I said, I, I love food and I love traveling and I probably wouldn't be as much just into food as he was, though he did cover some other things as well. But I really love the style of first person journalism. Like Even like there's this, I don't know if you've ever read any, Bill Buford. He wrote a number of books, including a great book called Among the Thugs years ago about British soccer hooligans, where he spent like eight years immersing himself in their world, like hanging out with them to gain their trust. And I don't think he told them he's a journalist, but he would run to the bathroom and furiously scribble notes for himself all the time. And to really immerse yourself in a different world and experience it in the first person. And yeah, Anthony Bourdain did a lot of that as well to go out on a limb to a lot of places and that's what i strive to do to go a little bit outside of my comfort zone not necessarily from a culinary standpoint just because i don't eat meat and i feel like some of the weirdest scariest foods are some kind of animal part or something um but yeah i do strive to go a little bit outside of my comfort zone to look for stories not to do like the crazy gonzo journalism what is scott doing now and like the jackass the tv show or whatever but more i feel like there's some kind of truth and honesty like my real emotions come across when i'm not just in reporter mode but just like experiencing something for the first time as an individual and like my genuine feelings and emotions and bringing the listeners along as well where they're also having this weird new experience that's foreign to them i just really like that style of reporting and then what do you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist i think i have a natural curiosity about the world, whether it's food or exploring different cultures or learning languages, or as I mentioned earlier, I feel like I'm a lifelong learner. Like I'm always curious in learning how things work or understanding how things got to be a certain way. Also that I feel like I'm pretty non-judgmental. I started out doing more advocacy journalism, but now I am more interested in like putting myself in someone else's shoes and seeing things from their standpoint. I feel like not everyone has that ability to do that. There's people who have really strong opinions or a lot of times like about politics, like whether it's Barack Obama or Donald Trump or like they can't even hear the mention of his name or they cringe or whatever. Like, I guess there's a good level of, I don't know if it's cynicism or just whatever it is, just being able to like listen to things and you might not agree with something I and mean, it might bother you, but still just being able to listen and hear someone out being governed, I think, more by my thoughts than my emotions, like where I just have this emotional reaction and I can't listen to another word someone says. I try to really just be open to different 
understandings of the world and different thinking that might be different from my own. Let's see. And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I wish I had been a little bit more adventurous earlier on. I feel like even like back in high school, there was like a Mexican exchange. And for whatever reason, I just wasn't interested in it. And my mom, to her credit, kind of had to twist my arm a little bit. And she's like, oh, I think it would be really good for you. I think you should try it. She had spent a lot of time in Mexico. In fact, her and my father met in school when they were both studying in Mexico. She was studying like art history and like the Aztecs and the Mayans. And so she encouraged me. She thought, oh, that'll be really good for you. And it was. And even in like my first few years of college where I'd never thought to study abroad, my college, Emerson College, like actually owns a castle in the Netherlands. And I could have like spent a semester abroad <laughs> there. And just the thought never occurred to me. I don't know why at the time I just wasn't that interested. Thankfully, over time, like I became more interested in my later college years, like the summer between my junior and my senior year. I found this really cool opportunity. I actually ended up spending the summer in Costa Rica. I interned at this shortwave radio station that was kind of affiliated with the United Nations. So that was super cool. And then the spring break of my senior year in college, I went to Mexico. And, and most people say, oh, I went to Mexico on spring break. And they think of like Cancun or something. No, I actually went as a journalist covering a march of the Zapatista Indians marching for indigenous rights. The Zapatistas, people may remember from old like Rage Against the Machine music videos or whatever they were, those like balaclavas over their face with their eyes peeking out. It's this like indigenous rebel group where they were marching from Chiapas in the southeasternmost part, poorest state of Mexico, all the way up to the capital, the Zocalo, right in the center of Mexico City, to make these demands for indigenous rights. And they were joined by all these other tribes along the way. And so I had these filmmaker friends who were going down. It just so happened to coincide with my spring break. And so I decided to join my filmmaker friends and flew down there. And again, I was in totally over my head. I didn't really know what I was doing. I ended, I rented a cell phone from the airport and ended up getting like a $2,000 cell phone bill at the end of the week. Um, I, I, I had no <laughs> clue what I was doing, but it was the coolest experience I ever had. I was just in college at the time, but I was doing national reporting for this show Democracy Now. I was like on the air live several times. And I think that really instilled in me this fascination of foreign reporting that I've wanted to do it ever since. What is one thing most people don't know about you? Maybe that in some ways I'm not as adventurous as I might seem, which seems weird to say, <laughs> but partially I think I have this persona on my podcast and I try to really force myself sometimes to go out of my comfort zone and try these crazy things and go to these crazy places. But then there's also part of me that's in some ways very cautious. And some people might have gotten a sense of this from listening to the first season of my podcast where historically I've been very much a planner. Like I read all the guidebooks, I do all the research ahead of time. So I know exactly what I'm getting into. And I feel like in recent years, I've been trying to get away from that a little bit. There's a delicate balance between on the one hand, I want to do some research. I want to know kind of what I'm getting into, certainly if it's like a dangerous place or you want to make contacts on the ground first. But even if it's not, even if I'm just going as a tourist or something, it's just this fear of missing out. Like I hate to travel to the other side of the world and then come all the way home and realize like, damn, if I had just driven like five miles down the road that way, I could have seen this really cool thing and I missed out on it. So yeah, I do want to do some planning, but I feel like also I need to leave more time for chance because especially looking for the kind of stories I'm looking for I feel like sometimes it's just when you let things just happen it's just the chance encounters with random people is when the coolest stories come about so I'm trying to kind of balance the two 
What is your most embarrassing journalism-related story? One thing that comes to mind, and this isn't a huge thing, but I feel like I've had several of these moments, like when I was a young reporter just starting out and I was hired, I, I worked for a very brief time as a producer of this like civil liberties radio show that was hosted by several notable attorneys. And so it was just at the very beginning, they were like launching the show and we were having like a planning meeting and they were talking about scheduling an interview with Sarah Kunstler, the daughter of the famous civil rights lawyer, William Kunstler. And I think maybe I had heard about him. I'd heard of his name at the time, but I didn't really know who he was. He's defended everyone from members of the Black Panther Party and the Weather Underground, the Catonsville Nine, the Attica Prison Riders. But I didn't really know all that at the time. And so I stupidly said, well, why are we interviewing his daughter? Why don't we just interview him? And they said, well, because he's dead. Um, and I had no idea. And I, you know, I was just this kind of <laughs> young kid. I didn't really know the history. And I feel like there have been several instances like that in my reporting career where I've had to balance uh, just for my own preservation, like not sounding dumb, because I'll admit I'm not always, you know, as well read and knowledgeable about history and politics and things like that as I should be. But also at the same time, not being afraid to ask really simple questions, like why don't we just interview him? Because, you know, sometimes those simple questions turn out not to be dumb at all. And, you know, maybe by being naive, I'm just approaching something from a perspective that no one else thought to ask. There's this really great NPR podcast called Through Line, which I really like. It's like a history podcast. So I've really been enjoying it because they're going into the history of the episode of like how North Korea came into existence, which I feel like there's this history I should know, but I somehow I missed that in high school. I think we focus so much on Vietnam, not about the Korean War or whatever. I, I didn't really know that history. So that was really instructive. Or they did an episode about the history of the Iranian revolution and everything that happened in 1979. I feel like there's so much background information that's sort of embedded in everyday reporting of the news. And it's kind of assumed that readers and listeners understand that context. But I feel like I'm not the the only one. I feel like there's a lot of people that don't. And so I really appreciate and I really like a lot of these public radio podcasts now. They're hosted by people who are more like millennials or people who are younger who don't know all the history in the background or even the daily from the New York Times where they approach things from just assuming people don't know anything and just remind us like tell us the history, tell us like how we got to this point or whatever. Instead of being pretentious and just assuming everyone knows this, like a lot of people don't. So I think feel like that's really good. And then what is the part of your day-to-day job or in the course of your work that you enjoy the most? I think I like once I'm past all the really annoying, tedious part of logging my hours of tape or transcribing when I have to do that and like picking out clips. Like I hate all that part of it. But once I get towards the end, once I'm wrapping up editing and have the clips and then if I'm scoring a piece, mixing in music or whatever, that's where the really creative fun part comes out. And I'll put some music under someone and it just sounds perfect. Like it it just makes it come alive. It's like cinematic sort of. Yeah, I really enjoy that. I think that's something kind of specific to what I do with audio, but I feel like that's really fun. Is there any particular interview tactics that you employ that you might suggest to other journalists? Well, as I was saying, sometimes playing dumb really works out well. What was this? This is so many years ago now. I'm trying to remember the specifics. When I did this documentary years ago when I was in Oklahoma about ballot access in the state. I already knew the answer they were going to say, but I was interviewing someone about what some document said or whatever, and they read it to me and I like pretended to be surprised. Or <laughs> I really wasn't. I totally knew what it was, but just by playing dumb and yeah, like acting a little bit, it 
you know, I wasn't fabricating anything, but I feel like it just made it a much more captivating instance or sometimes just asking really dumb questions and pretending to like not know certain things I do just to get certain reactions out of someone is sometimes helpful. And then sometimes I've spoken to them afterwards and say, well, just for my own ego or whatever, I tell them, well, you know, I, I knew that. I just want to make sure they know after the interview, like I just had to ask it that way. So they understand that I'm not as stupid as I come across always. Sometimes I am. <laughs> and then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? I really like On the Media which is a public radio show and podcast. I listen every single week. In fact, I just listened to this weekend's already this morning. It's hosted by Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield. It's produced by WNYC New York Public Radio. And it's such a good show. It's one of the few, most of the podcasts and programs I listen to are more highly produced. And they do some highly produced stuff, but a lot of their stuff is just straight interviews. But I always finish listening feeling like I'm smarter, like I've learned something new or I've gained some new perspective where they cover things about the media or sometimes it's a little bit of history or sometimes it goes a little bit into like civil liberty, civil rights, stuff like that. But I feel like both of the hosts are just so smart and it rubs off on all the listeners. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, yeah, I used to listen to it on the media a lot. I, I feel like I should, again, sometimes just to keep tabs on what's going on in the media. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Probably a chef. I wouldn't enjoy, I think, like cooking the same thing all the time. And I feel like I like cooking now, but if I had to do it as a job and make 30 of the same thing, I would probably dread it. But I don't know, maybe there's a way to make it work if I had some restaurant or even a little deli or something where I was always like cooking with local seasonal ingredients and like it was something different every day depending on what I got at the farmer's market or whatever. Aside from my bedroom where I sleep every night, the kitchen is definitely the room in the house where I spend the most of my time. And I just really like experimenting with different foods and different cuisines. And of course, now that I can't travel, that's the way I'm able to travel by trying when making foods and using spices from all over the world. So, yeah, I feel like it's a really good way during this time of the pandemic to get to experience other cultures. Good answer. So that, that's all the questions I have. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jake. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Scott Gurian, producer and host of the podcast Far From Home. I'll post a link to Scott's podcast and some of the other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, February 28th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.